Any treatment of the contemporary relevance of Aquinas' Christology could appeal to any number of themes. The relevance of his Neo-Chalcedonian understanding of the divinity and humanity of Christ in one composite person. The biblical argumentations he provides for central tenets of the Catholic faith. His metaphysics of the hypostatic union, or one might allude to Aquinas' doctrine of the capital grace of Christ, his understanding of Jesus's human developmental historicity, the significance of his beatific vision and infused knowledge as man, and the revelation of the Trinity in the life and passion of Christ. Finally, I think one could make much today of Aquinas's notion of Christ's human instrumentality as a unique and universal mediator of grace and of the eschatological doctrine of Christ as it pertains to general cosmology. Nevertheless, I've chosen to focus on only one specific and simple theme, which is none of those mentioned. One of the key aims of the conference for which we are gathered this week in Rome is the consideration of the actual vitality and promise of the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas for our world today, and indeed for the Catholic Church in her universal mission to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to advance plenary reception of the apostolic teaching of the New Testament. Toward this end, I'd like to consider Aquinas' doctrine of God's real presence in our world and the way that his Christology in particular contributes to his theology. My idea behind this topic is that one of the most fundamental challenges we face in the world today is a loss of the sense of the presence of God, or perhaps confusion at contested and diverse notions of the presence of God in the world. What I hope to explore in effect is the distinctively Christian and Catholic concept of God's presence in the world, since it is indeed wholly unique. Aquinas has helpful things to say on the subject, and they pertain to his Christology and its contemporary relevance. Let me say a brief word then about the problem of the perception of God's presence in our world today, and then consider Aquinas' notion of three forms of the presence of God in the world. This will allow us to clarify the distinctively Christian idea of divine presence, and based on this reflection, some theological and practical truths should emerge. First then, let me address the problem as I see it. Simply stated, many people in our contemporary world find it difficult to believe that God is present in the world and can be encountered, and they have little awareness of or interest in the living exper experience of the presence of God. This is a problem distinct from that of metaphysical understanding of the reality of God or doctrinal understanding of the divine revelation, but these topics are deeply interrelated, as I will intimate. Why then should we think that any new problem regarding the presence of God has emerged? Many reasons can be cited, but I will note three that I think have evident primacy among the others. The first is the immersion of the modern human person in a media-driven world of the senses, in which the intellect and heart are typically drowned in visual and audible spheres of sensory appearances made possible by modern technology, which contain rapidly changing information, that excites curiosity, stimulates the passions and instincts, 
and that moves reason through a field of intuitions far from the consideration of deeper religious, metaphysical, and ethical principles. The self thus becomes buffered against the acceptation of its own profundity. This is a psychological and moral observation, but as we will see soon, it invites us to certain Christological and Eucharistic considerations about the real presence of God in sensible form. Second, the intellectual problem of modernity first enunciated by Gotthold Lessing in his consideration of Christian revelation still remains influential for many. How might one believe in the absolute truth of one revelation in history when there are others that seem to vie and contest with the fundamental truth claims of the New Testament? This is the classic problem of religious pluralism, which, when joined with the consideration of religious violence and terrorism, seems naturally to ally itself with the program of political liberalism in its more aggressively secular modes, as indeed Lessing intended from the start following Spinoza. So often today, the human community is led to believe that any appeal to an absolute Christological dogma is an appeal to religious authoritarianism outside of and against the grain of natural reason and the common good of mutual tolerance and just social order. Third, in light of the eclipse of the metaphysical understanding of our cosmos, the medium through which most persons receive a sense of baseline objectivity in regard to nature is through the accessible and popular representations they are given of the advances of the natural sciences, physics, biology, chemistry, and thus the story of the cosmos promoted by contemporary Big Bang cosmology and evolutionary history becomes the univocal and exclusive mode in which the meaning of the physical universe is to be understood. This understanding, while legitimate in its own right, provides no sense of the presence of God and indeed can readily, human, readily lead human beings to a sense of the unintelligibility and you might say ethical meaninglessness of their uniqueness as a self-aware and free agent in an otherwise hollow universe, to borrow a famous phrase from Charles DeConnick. I turn now to Aquinas on presence, and I will come back to these considerations in various ways to follow. Following Augustine and Peter Lombard, Aquinas distinguishes three really distinct modes of God's presence to creatures, which he discusses especially in the Sentences Commentary, Book 1, Distinction 37, Question 1, Article 2, and famously in Summa Theologiae Prima Pars, Question 8, especially Article 3. In both these texts, the first mode of presence pertains to God as the creative giver and conserver of essay of all that exists, to whom God is omnipresent. The second pertains to rational creatures, angels and men, who receive habitual grace from God, such, they are, such as they are able to know and love God, possessing each in their proper mode a supernatural participation in the life of the Holy Trinity. This is the presence of God by grace. The third mode is hypostatic. It is that which pertains to the existence of the Son in human nature, the presence of God in virtue of the Incarnation. Let us consider each of these rapidly, building from the first to the third, so as to show the Christological implications of Aquinas' teachings. 
When Aquinas considers the omnipresence of God in his mature teaching in Summa Theologiae Prima Pars Question 8, Article 1, he casts the treatment of the topic in light of his own distinctive consideration of the metaphysics of essay. God is the actual cause of all that exists, of all that has being, and thus by that very measure, God is within all that is as the cause of all that is, more intimately present to and within all things than they are to themselves, and more profoundly so than any creature may be to one another. God is existence by essence, or essentially, while all else that is receives its being from God. Aquinas writes famously, Now God causes this effect in things not only when they first begin to be, but as long as they are preserved in being, as light is caused in the air by sun as long as the air remains illuminated. Therefore, as long as a thing has being, God must be present to it according to its mode of being. But essay is innermost to each thing and most fundamentally inherent in all things since it is formal in respect of everything found in a thing. Hence, it must be that God is in all things and innermostly. In light of his metaphysics of creation, Aquinas analyzes the commonly received medieval affirmation of Peter Lombard that God is present in all things in virtue of his essence, presence, and power. In fact, these three terms signify really distinct aspects of human existence, but they pertain to something that is one in God. God is present in all things by his essence as the one who is essentially essence. Active, sorry, essentially existence, actively communicating being to all others. In doing so, he knows and loves all things and thus is present personally to all that is by knowledge and by love. And so what he is essentially as knowledge and love personally is available to all that is in its innermost being. And he does all that he does in creation in virtue of his power or virtus, and thus his operation of divine wisdom and goodness with all of its unique creative capacity is found at the very heart of all things, whether in the order of nature or in the order of grace. We should note the Trinitarian connotations of this doctrine. For Aquinas, God's inner life of knowledge and love is also mysteriously Trinitarian in form, and essentially so. The life of God just is the Father eternally begetting his word and spirating the love of the Spirit with the word and from him. Thus, the omnipresence of God in his inner life is one in which the Father is communicating essay to all things through the word and in the Spirit in such a way that the Trinity is omnipresent to all that is. At the heart of all being, there is the Trinity. And the Trinity can act among upon the innermost depths of being without going outside of itself, without self-mutating, without self-perfecting in any way. The actual perfect and infinite Trinitarian life is the ground of all creation, the creative furnace at the core of all things. And yet, as Aquinas notes, the Trinity is also for us 
qua philosophical knowers of the natural reality around us, hidden from view, or concealed, we might say concealed by the creation, since God's effects of nature are the effects of all three persons, and therefore one cannot infer or demonstrate the reality of the Trinity merely from the consideration of the created natural world, as one can positively come to understand there to be one transcendent God and creator. It is in light of revelation alone that we come to understand that the one God present at the heart of all things is, in fact, the Trinitarian God of eternal interpersonal communion. Second, let us note the distinctive mode of presence of the Trinity to creation in virtue of the communication of the life of grace to spiritual creatures. Here it makes some sense to turn to Summa Theologiae Prima Secundae, question 110, article 1, where Aquinas treats the essence of grace. He considers it as a created habit a created habit infused into the soul of the human person. And there, in responses one and two in that article, he makes distinctions of an analysis seemingly based on Aristotelian causes, transposed into a theological register. God is immediately present in the soul as the one of, of, sorry, of the one he communicates grace to, rendered present now in a new mode as the author of grace, by way of efficient causality. Grace, formally speaking, is created, an essential habitus of the soul, like health is for the body, that flowers in the theological virtues, infused moral virtues, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Grace has for its consequence or final effect to place us in immediate knowledge of and communion with the life of the Trinity in the possession of God. Teleologically speaking, then, supernatural faith attains to the first truth in itself, and faith in its inward dynamism is ordered to the lumen gloriae, the, the grace which facilitates the immediate vision of God. Otherwise stated, the life of grace is something created, but it is from the Trinity and for the Trinity. It occurs effectively in virtue of God's already established creative presence in the most intimate of the human person's soul, wherein God takes a new initiative, establishing a new mode of presence that has as its effect to orient the human person toward perfect spiritual possession of the life of the Trinity by means of a supernatural grace adapted to the creaturely state. There are some important corollaries to this doctrine, each of which one can refer to briefly. First, it is clear that for Aquinas, the mode of God's presence by grace presupposes the first mode of omnipresence as creator. For only he who is present to all things in their innermost being by actively communicating essay to them in act can also act within the depths of the spiritual creature so as to lift it up into the supernatural order gratuitously. The spiritual creature, likewise, cannot ascend of its own spiritual power to immediate contact with and knowledge of the essence of God in say, but must be granted that privilege by a supernatural gift. The gift of grace is given from within the essence of the soul of man, 
without being identical with human nature as such, but it is accorded with total respect for our nature and its most imminent flourishing. Not only does the presence of God by grace respect integrally the structure and prerogatives of human personhood so that grace does no harm to the spiritual creature, but it also heals and perfects the rational creature even in accord with its own proportionate inclinations and powers. Sylvester of Ferrara, in his commentary on Summa Contra Gentiles 3, chapter 51, notes that for Aquinas, at least one may argue, the natural desire to know God perfectly stems primordially from the natural inclination to know the causes of all things. The human being has the desire to know God in himself, and this desire can only be perfectly fulfilled effectively by supernatural grace, which grants the human person perfect possession of the life of God, exceeding all proportionate human capacities while also fulfilling them in superabundance. Third, then, let us note the hypostatic mode of presence that Aquinas affirms is present in Christ as such and that pertains to his personal essay. Aquinas' theology of the hypostatic union is decidedly Cyrillian, meaning referring to Cyril of Alexandria, in its orientations. It grants a great attention to the teaching of the, of the Council of Ephesus uh, on the unity of the person of Christ, as well as to the anti-Nestorian uh, uh, writings of Cyril insofar as Aquinas had uh, access to them. But it correlates this theology with the reception of Cyril undertaken by Leo the Great and the councils of Chalcedon and Third Constantinople in a coordinated fashion, influenced not a little by John Damascene in his mature Christological conciliar reception. For our purposes, it is of chief significance to note that Aquinas's metaphysics of the hypostatic union builds upon or is coordinated logically with his doctrine of creation. The personal essay or actual personal existence of Christ is not created, but rather strictly uncreated. It is the pre-existent eternal word and son who subsists personally in Jesus Christ as one who is fully human. Who exists in Christ? The eternal son made man. Jesus is the son of God, eternally begotten of the father, truly God, truly man. God who has lived a human life among us, God who was crucified, God who is glorified in his resurrected human nature. This mystery of the incarnation life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is not identical with the omnipresence of God to all things as creator, but we might say in a sense it presupposes it, not in terms of the composition of the hypostatic subject of Jesus, which is uncreated, but in the sense of the effectuation of the incarnation. For if the Trinity is present, hidden as the ground of being of all that is, existing in all things in virtue of God's essence, presence, and power, then God can also enter into a new way onto the stage of history by becoming human personally, without in any way ceasing to be God, and without in any way altering who God is in himself eternally, so as to manifest in human nature what he is as God. 
namely his Trinitarian life and divine nature, manifest in the human nature of God. Furthermore, God can do this without in any way compromising or diminishing in Jesus of Nazareth what it is to be naturally human. Just as the primary cause of creatures does not diminish their secondary agency, its secondary created causality, but rather the primary causality is its foundation, so the presence of God by grace does not diminish their natural integrity as knowing and loving subjects in history. And yet, analogously, we could add, the presence of the Son existing as one who is human does not diminish the natural causality and human operational integrity of the Son of Man in his human agency and autonomy. Rather, the contrary is the case. By his plenitude of grace, by his plenitude of habitual grace, which follows fittingly and in a sense necessarily from the hypostatic union, the Son of God as man enjoys a greater understanding and a greater moral autonomy of charity and virtue than any other human being. His undiminishable spiritual perfection as man flows from his deity as God as a mysterious and necessary consequence. Allow me to note three corollary teachings that are connected to this affirmation of the presence of God in history that is unique to Christ. First, it is obvious that this presence is not only that of God in our human nature, but it is also a real Trinitarian presence. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit, surely, but the Father is in the Son and the Father and the Son are in the Holy Spirit. Their mutual indwelling, circumincessio or perichoresis, is founded principally upon the plenary communication of the divine essence. This is only one reason Aquinas offers, but it is the first. All that the Father is as God is communicated to the Son from the Father to the and the sorry, all that the Father is as God is communicated to the Son, and from the Father and the Son to the Spirit. So all that each person is as God is present essentially and entirely within one another, just as they are each the one God. If God is essentially present in Christ, such that Christ truly possesses the plenitude of the divine nature, mysteriously present in himself, then the Father and the Holy Spirit are each wholly present mysteriously wherever Jesus Christ is, as indeed he tells, he tells us, in, I, I and the Father are one. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. So to have Christ the Son present in history then is to have the Father present essentially in a new manner, as the one who gives the Son to be all that he is as Lord and God, subsisting in our human nature, in our human flesh. And it is to have the Spirit present as the one who eternally proceeds forth from and is sent forth from the Father and the Son as their mutually spirated love. Hidden in Christ, in his human nature, in his death, in his glorified, resurrected humanity, is the first ground of creation and the author of grace, the Father recreating and consummating all things in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. A second corollary, this unique mode of God present in Christ by uncreated grace, that is to say by the gift of the hypostatic union, mysteriously remains in our world and 
abides among us. This is true first and foremost because of the mystery of the resurrection as a perduring reality present to us. Christ's glorified humanity is not quantitatively contiguous with our universe as if he were locally or spatially present within it in a given place. Instead, his glorified flesh, now characterized by impassibility, subtlety, and clarity, is in a new state we can call by place, by, we can call a place by analogy. In this new state of the resurrection, Christ is metaphysically present to our universe, even substantially, and can act upon it when he so wishes. Indeed, Christ, the incarnate word, does act both in virtue of his deity and his humanity by grace upon all members of humanity. The glorified body and blood, this is the third corollary, the glorified body and blood of Christ are rendered substantially present under the appearances of bread and wine in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, and this real presence of his body and blood implies by concomitance that of his human soul and divinity. Likewise, it implies the real presence of the Father and of the Holy Spirit in the Son, who are both one with him as God. Does this Eucharistic presence constitute a new and fourth presence in addition to those named by Aquinas? I take it that it does not, but that it is simply the third presence, the esse personale of Christ, present in his human nature and his body and blood, rendered present to us in a distinctively sacramental mode on the occasion of the confection of the Eucharistic species. The Eucharistic presence, however, permits the church to abide with the living Christ in friendship, as Aquinas states, as Christ is one who is in a qualified but genuine sense now tangible in history, sensibly present to us in the world, even experientially known. Likewise, Christ is present in his activity in the mystical body of the church through his effects of grace, the operative effects of the various sacraments, the teaching of divine truth in the sacred word of God exposited in the life of the members of Christ's body, and through the lives of persons of remarkable holiness through miracles and signs of Christological agency. These are not substantial presences of Christ, but they are signs of his substantial presence active and living in the church, which the Bible compares metaphorically to a vine living in its branches or a head living in communion with its body as the members of Christ bear witness to him who is alive in the resurrection at the heart of the church. Thus, the Son of God is a primary source of all habitual grace in human beings as God and an instrumental cause of their grace as man. And he is a final cause as God insofar as he draws all human beings into perfect communion with the Father, himself, and the Holy Spirit. And yet he is also an exemplary cause of the church insofar as the effects of his grace conform, after, uh, conform the church after the pattern of his sacred humanity to his own life of perfection in grace. The history of the presence of God in creation then, the history of the presence of God in creation as a Christological center in which the personal existence and presence of the Son-made human plays a unique role. Obviously, this Christian and Thomistic vision of the presence of God in creation is complex, and some might even wish to say ornate. 
but it is helpful to compare it conceptually with some other important alternatives in order to consider ways that Aquinas' account of the presence of God in our world can be of help to Catholic Christians in our own contemporary cultural moment. So I wish then to note in cursory fashion, all too superficially, but elusively, let's say alluding to possible points of research, two distinct non-Christian non religious notions of the divine presence that differ from this Catholic conception and that contrast also with one another almost by points of extremity to one another. So on the one side, we can consider the living and highly influential perspective of Islam. There can be nothing controversial in noting that the Quranic understanding of God as Allah excludes belief in the incarnation and that it, and that it denies that the human being has or can achieve perfect and immediate knowledge of the essence of God conceived as Trinity, based on the Christian understanding of the beatific vision of the Trinity. In fact, Islamic teaching traditionally underscores the dangers of the Christian concept of a filial adoption by grace, the second mode of presence alluded to, since this idea seems to presuppose by presumption too great an anthropological ambition to, to union and intimacy with the living God or a failure to safeguard transcendence in non-anthropologically conceived terms. However, we nuance the convergences and divergences between the two religious traditions, it can be said with some qualifications that Islam greatly stresses something akin, not identical with, but something akin to the first form of presence we have explored above of the omnipresent and omnipotent God who is present in all things, to all things, distinct and transcendent from them as creator. But that it does so in a certain sense over and against Aquinas' third notion of an incarnation of God in his person, the esse personale of God in history. And perhaps with some prejudice to the Christian notion of God's Trinitarian presence to the world made possible by the infusion of habitual grace, although the subject of Islam and grace is a very subtle one. The Islamic reaction to Christianity rightly places a strong accent on the transcendence of God to creatures and vis-a-vis -vis the human pretension to self-initiated intimacy with the divine. My principal aim here then is not to suggest a purely contrasting view of Islam since Islamic theology also seeks to underscore at least one significant point of contact that it maintains it's, uh, we can, sorry, because we can underscore in Islamic theology one significant point of contact that it maintains with Christian self-understanding. And I think, as I'll say in a moment, Thomistic reflection can help facilitate mutual convergences. We can consider on the other side a basic claim found in various schools, though not all schools, of Advaita Vedantic non-dualistic Hindu tradition, such as that famously associated with the 8th century philosopher Sankara that teaches that the human person is at base ontologically identical with the one God, as are all other seemingly multiple and temporal realities. When one rightly sees through the veil of creation, it can be understood to give way to a unique and all-encompassing divinity and singular human personhood can be seen retrospectively in light of Vedic revelation as a kind of illusion that God and that the, and that the human person ultimately, when the illusion is 
seen through has God it's himself as its deepest ground, kind of a unipersonal monism. In this case, we find something different from, but not wholly opposed to that third form of presence that Aquinas identifies, of God identical in esse personale with his creation. However, this form of presence is seemingly not distinguished rigorously by Sankara from what Aquinas deems God's first form of presence by way of creation, nor is it clear that the second form of presence by grace is even intelligible on this register, let alone needed. In fact, I think there would be interesting points of convergence to uh, explore with regards to each of Aquinas' no norms of presence, as uh, because the fact that the creation in Aquinas' metaphysics of essay adds nothing to the infinite perfection of God's being does give us some conceptual latitude to think about the creation as a um, contingent expression of the divine in ways that could be correlated with things found in this, uh, this particular Vedantic tradition. And the notion of grace as in part restricting or even to use the mystical language of the Carmelite tradition, annihilating elements of the human personality can be correlated with the Christian conception of the notion of grace as perfecting the flourishing of the human personality. So there might be some modest convergences there as well. The notion of the spiritual life as one that entails a post-personalistic, pantheistic totality is not wholly foreign to modern Western societies. And in fact, it remains in its popular forms of great interest to people who venture into contemporary spiritualist or so-called new age movements. It's always dangerous to characterize the distinct religious traditions in terms of one another, since they each have their own unique forms of self-understanding with deep historical uh, depths and all kinds of conceptual rigor and confusions frequently arise from superficial ventures into comparative religion. However, it is clear based on a distinctly Christian form of self-understanding cast in a Thomistic light that Christians procure advantages by beginning from Aquinas' scholastic threefold starting point. Indeed, it is the awareness of what the omnipresence of the creator provides and does not provide, according to St. Thomas, that makes room rationally and spiritually for the longing of a yet higher encounter with God by grace and by way of the incarnation, which can be seen, incarnation and grace, retrospectively as metaphysically fitting mysteries by which God freely makes himself known to us and gratuitously elevates us into his divine life. It is the metaphysical consideration of God as the omnipresent creator who is both imperfectly manifest and simultaneously concealed by the effects of his creation that renders us more sensitive, on Aquinas' view, to the human need for grace and to the fittingness of God's human life among us as one that reveals to us the inner life of God and that communicates a participation of that life to us by grace in Christ's capital grace as a gift, not as something God is either prohibited from communicating due to his aseity and transcendence, nor as a mere natural extension of God to which we are merely awakened by the Vedic revelation. Nostra Aetate speaks of seeds of the truth present in non-Christian religions. Christians animated by a sensitivity 
to the aforementioned Thomistic principles can indeed engage constructively with devout uh, truth-seeking Muslims who have a, a rich philosophical and theological tradition of their own to consider the creative transcendence of God present at the heart of his creation, pointing out that this same God is able freely to communicate a participation in the divine life by grace, and that indeed the omnipresent and omnipotent God can, if he so wishes, even become human and can do so fittingly in his wisdom and love. Christians can engage with those influenced by the Vedantic traditions in the East and the West so as to underscore with them the possibility of achieving plenary union with God, but they will do so, but they, but they will be able to identify what Christians take to be the genuine means of union by way of grace, which is communicated to us by the incarnate, incarnate word. The incarnation of God in history takes place as a free and fitting initiative of God that allows the fulfillment of divine union, not by natural inevitability, but by the gift of grace. Of course, it goes without saying that Aquinas's notion of the threefold presence of God in creation also has direct bearings upon the Catholic engagement with secular culture and political order as well. For if God's omnipresence in creation can be understood philosophically by means of a metaphysically reasonable notion of creation, and if God's essence remains simultaneously inaccessible to us in say, through the consideration of nature and God's natural effects, then it is, in fact, philosophical, philosophically reasonable to wonder who God is in himself. And simultaneously, it is reasonable to be open to the possibility of divine revelation, to grace, and to the discovery of God's real presence in the world, in the incarnation, in the sacraments, and in the church. Beyond this realm of the considerations of pure reason, and in complement to it, we can also speak of the experiential discovery and encounter with Jesus Christ. We can speak of his resurrected presence, especially in the Eucharist and in the mystical body of the church and the life of her membership. How can people today encounter the living presence of God in history, both in reason and in faith, through the living promulgation of the teaching of the church regarding the presence of God in all things? his presence in, God, in souls by grace, and his presence in the world in Christ. The Eucharist has a distinctive importance in this regard as a primary locus of mystical and experiential encounter with the glorified flesh of Christ and the personal presence of the Son, who is as the personal presence of the Son, who is one with the Father and who sends the Spirit upon the world. And here, the whole armament of Thomistic anthropology and the ethics of virtue and habituation can play an important role in thinking about attentiveness, attentiveness in the intellectual life of speculative contemplation, attentiveness in the theological life and the practice of the virtues of religion and the theological exercise, the exercise of the theological virtues to become a person attuned spiritually to the presence of Christ, docile but also active in living with Christ in the world. One task of Thomistic Christology in our own age then is to contribute to the building up of the right habits of knowledge and wisdom to understand the creation in reasonable metaphysical terms, to understand the mystery of grace 
and the practical habits that cultivate a cooperation with grace, and to understand in theological science the mystery of Christ and his church. Coupled with active teaching and genuine discipleship in preaching and contemplating and worshiping the Holy Trinity, these practices bear visible existential witness to the living Christ, and they invite our contemporaries, both religious and secularized, to discover the presence of God in the world, and indeed, the truth of the Catholic religion. One can think here of the title of a book written in the 20th century by the Carmelite mystic Elizabeth of the Trinity, a title that is both simple and eloquent. J'ai trouvé Dieu. I found God. I found God. Each disciple of Aquinas should be able to say this and also teach people both how to discover and live in the presence of Christ. Thank you very much.